Welcome back to Trending in Education. Dan Schaffer, Mike Palmer along with you with a very interesting topic, digital inclusion. We have two guests we'll get to momentarily. Always like to check in with Mike first. Mike, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great, Dan, and I'm, I'm excited to include our guests. So, uh, so I think we should, we should dispense uh, with the amenities and uh, get right on to the, uh, the introductions. And we do that now. Zandi Wright, colleague here at Kaplan Test Prep, also a friend of the show, has been a contributor with articles in the past and really pushing us forward on some topics. And Angela Seifer, who is executive director over the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. Zandi, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Angela, how about yourself? Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm super. I'm uh, working outside today from Columbus, Ohio, so I'm feeling very fortunate. Well, there you have it. That sounds like a very good way to record a podcast. Uh, Zandi, let's start with, with you and, and why you brought this topic forward. You, you brought it to us uh, as a potential topic for covering here on the podcast, your connection with NDIA, but why, why is this important to you and what brought you into it and to study it further? Sure. So I got into uh, online education primarily through my previous work with Kaplan and uh, went on to get my master's in adult education with a focus on online. Uh, and what I found was that we, uh, a lot of people tend to make assumptions about that, oh, if you put degrees online or if you put training programs online, that that makes them more universally accessible. Uh, and, you know, kept finding that that's, that's true in some ways, but not in all of the ways that we want it to be. Um, so this has really become a, a passion area for me, and I was really excited to connect up with uh, NDIA and find out that there are a lot of other folks working on these same issues. Angela, could you give us a little bit of the background behind the National Digital Inclusion Alliance and exactly how it came to be and where it stands now as an organization? Yeah, sure. Uh, NDIA got started about five years ago because there were some of us who'd worked in the field. We didn't call it digital inclusion um, forever. That's a more recent term. Uh, but meeting folks who are figuring out how their neighbors can have access to technology, affordable access, uh, making sure there's digital skills training available, making sure the right devices are around. And so the individuals who tend to do this work um, are community-based organizations, libraries, uh, housing authorities, and local governments. And we weren't nationally talking to each other, nor did we have a voice in DC. And then we knew there were policy decisions being made. So we're like, we need to just create something. So we did. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So uh, just to clarify some of the terms, because uh, it does seem like there's there's quite a few that are relevant to this conversation. There's uh, the idea of digital inclusion. Uh, there's also the idea of uh, the gap that exists or the gaps that exist, uh, sometimes described as uh, the, the homework gap. Um, and then there's also, uh, you know, among other things, the notion of uh, digital readiness. Um, can you talk us through uh, some of these terms? Because uh, uh, this might be the first exposure for some of our listeners. Right. And it's important to, to know that this is a new field. Mm -hmm. So if we think about how long technology has been around and the big scheme of things and how important it is in our lives, it's actually pretty new. Mm -hmm. So those who are addressing these gaps where folks don't have access to technology or don't have digital skills. Um, we keep evolving those terms and as we move forward, we figure things out. So um, we defined, the NDIA community defined digital equity as uh, individuals and communities having access to information, communication technologies to do whatever it is that they need to do. So that's a goal. And then digital inclusion is the activities that get us to that goal. So this is affordable home broadband, digital literacy training, the right devices, uh, the right applications, 
uh, it's the things that get us there. And then another common term is digital readiness. So this is related to the digital literacy piece of it, mm -hmm. which is that we just need to be ready for anything. Yeah. <laughs> technology keeps changing. We can't be like, okay, well, look, I'm just done learning technology. None of us are ever done because it keeps changing. So as soon as you think you've, and we all have experienced this, right? You think you've figured something out and then the next day it changes. Yeah, and just, just to kind of build on that, uh, Angela, you were mentioning how uh, back in the day, the, and I like to talk about back in the day. So, so please, oh, good, good, good. I thought we're, we're in a safe place. So uh, back in the day, the digital meant access to computers, even in the pre-internet era. And, uh, you know, you've been tracking this for, for some time. Can you, can you talk about how the internet uh, changed the conversation yeah. and, and how, like, it, where we are today? Yeah, so um, I got started in this work when I was a grad student, so that'd be like 97-ish. Mm -hmm. And um, we were helping set up computer labs and helping folks create a coalition around what then we were taught referring to as the digital divide. Um, and we would set up these labs, these computer labs, and we would be lucky if there'd be one computer in the lab that had access to the internet. And the rest of them were for learning how to use Microsoft Office or writing a resume, um, you know, using applications that we didn't call them applications back then, right? Software that was on your computer and learning the computer that was in the lab. Um, and, but then time has progressed and now we expect folks to have access to the internet. Assumptions are made by government agencies and by businesses and by nonprofits and everyone that we interact with that you do have access to the internet. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have access to the internet, then all of that great those, you know, the services that are out there and the products that are available, they're really only available to a portion of our communities. Mm -hmm. And um, just how it breaks down across the U.S., uh, can you describe where the real problem areas are? Yeah, so there's 20 million people in the United States, or 20 million households, who that don't have access to the internet in their homes. Uh, and we, a lot of times, folks assume that those are rural because the, 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 five, the, you know, the, the infrastructure itself isn't laid. But actually of that 20 million households, five are rural and 15 million are ur what we would call urbanized areas. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not that it's not there, it's that it's too, it's too expensive. Got it. The biggest barrier now to having internet in your home is the cost. Right. And, and folks will, uh, I have heard, I'm not going to, I'm not going to point fingers at the folks, but folks will say that, uh, you know, you can find Wi-Fi at a nearby coffee shop and, uh, you know, everybody has a cell phone. This is folks. This is not me. Yeah, yeah, of course. Everybody, everybody has a cell phone. Uh, what's, what's up with that? Like, why, why, isn't that, why isn't that just solving the problem? You know, show people where the nearest Wi-Fi hotspots are and boom, problem solved. Right. So cell phones are a like lots of folks do have cell phones, but uh, the tighter your budget, the lower your data plan on mm -hmm. that cell phone. So you may have a phone that has a very limited data or no data at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we only rely upon those public locations for our Wi-Fi, think about all the ways that you use the internet. Would you want to do all those things in public locations, right? Do you want to do your, your banking at the McDonald's? Do you want to look up your health records? and see, you know, when your next doctor appointment is at the, at the McDonald's. And I, can, I, uh, I have three children, two of whom are now in college, but I can tell you that when they were teenagers, they did not do their homework when I wanted them to do their homework. 
I'm and sure. I don't think they're all that unusual. They did their homework about 10 o'clock at night when I thought they should be sleeping. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you just cannot possibly send your teenager to McDonald's at 10 o'clock at night to finish their homework. Right. They're just not going to finish it. Right. Your, that child doesn't, have that, doesn't do their homework, and the child who does have internet is doing their homework. Right. Mm-hmm. And, yes. and, then, and then that speaks to the homework gap, right? So that's when, right. when people talk about the homework gap, uh, what, what, do they actually, what do they mean? What are, they, what are we talking about? And are there any problems with that, that way of thinking? Yeah, they're talking about students who do not have access to the internet in order to do their homework. Uh, because many schools do require uh, homework require is a strong word. They often offer opportunities to strengthen your learning through the internet. Um, So like my youngest child is uh, in fourth grade and she is not required to go online for anything, but she can do these extra math prep and she can do these extra spelling prep. So she can do these things that enhance her learning. Um, So even though in her case, it's not required, she's definitely benefiting by having internet at home. And then as the children get older, it is actually required. There's a lot of um, research that's done online. There are a lot of applications out there now that do amazing, you know, making learning fun and it's Mm -hmm. awesome, but only for the kids who have internet at home. Yeah. And uh, actually, I want to come back to the flip side of that, where like there's a new movement against screen time, which which I think is an interesting one. So so I'm going to hold that thought. I wanted to bring uh, Zandi in uh, just as someone who's recently gone through a more formal uh, educational program about uh, digital inclusion. Um, any thoughts on that? Like, uh, you know, first off, where, where did you study? How did you get access to this uh, curriculum? Like, how many programs are out there of this nature? You know, how did you find the program? What was it like? And what did you, what did you learn? Because it sounds like, you know, Angela was in uh, from back in the day. And, uh, and then you've been in of late where more formal education is emerging around these topics. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Sure. So I got my master's in adult education with a focus on uh, online and distance learning uh, through Penn State, which Penn State has had a, a longstanding program on distance learning from well before it was was online education from, you know, when it was more of a correspondence model. Mm-hmm. Uh, And there are a few universities that have a a particular focus on that distance education. Lots, lots more that have a sort of an adult education or a blend of higher ed and adult ed. Um, But so my experience, uh, it was my program also was fully online and fully distance. um, So it was very meta of, you know, we're, we're studying the the ways that one makes engaging distance education over uh, a distance and uh, getting to apply the things that we learned. Um, but to your point about the ways that students uh, are impacted by not having the internet at home, um, I wanted to add actually some of my professional experience more recently is um, uh, teaching in-person uh, college classes with students who mostly do have, have their own computers and have smartphones, uh, but we do have students who come into say, the writing center at a university with a seven page paper that they wrote on their smartphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, trying, trying to imagine uh, that, just that use of that technology for uh, a task that I think we would all probably agree is just that there's a mismatch there, right, between the task and the tool. Um, and so that becomes a, a real problem. Yeah, and I bet uh, I bet both of you could tell us some stories around um, surprising ways in which people solve these access problems 
and you know work through more resistance than folks who just have high-speed internet in their homes. Uh, I don't know if you guys, you know, I mean, the example seven-page paper on your, on, your, uh, on your mobile phone is a great example of that. Uh, I don't know if there are other examples that come to mind, but, uh, but it's easy to forget when you're, you're in the position of access what it might be like if I had to you know, solve these problems from a, a position where I don't have that access. I don't know if either of that have any, uh, anything else to say on that. There's been increasing understanding that not having access at home, um, that there's a there's a time loss and a resource loss to go to that access. So if the unless you are lucky enough to have your library down the street or some other free public Wi-Fi right down the street, you are you have to transport yourself. So if you don't have a car, then you have to get on the bus. You have to pay for the bus. It's your time to get there. If you have children in tow and you need to fill out your application. How do you keep those children busy? Because oftentimes at a library, sometimes depending upon the library you're at, there can be a wait for those computers. So you can't just stick your child on another computer, or maybe your child's like two, and you don't want them to be on a computer, right? Like, so there, it's hard, it's, it's important for us to think about what we don't have to give up. Mm -hmm. We don't have to give up our time because we do have access to the internet right in our homes. Yeah, and just I think Dan's got uh, Dan's got something. He he's gonna he's gonna help affect a pivot in a second. It's gonna be very exciting. But uh, but like while we're on that that point, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a recent uh, parent, so I have an eight month old at home, and uh, you know, we try desperately to keep Matthew from looking at screens because every screen in the house has a magical glow that he is gravitating towards, and uh, you know, it's just natural to. Uh, to gravitate towards these screens. And uh, we've even covered uh, in a few different ways on the show, the increasing movement within Silicon Valley and among arguably the elite to say, um, you know, screens are bad for education. Access to uh, digital is actually damaging to our, our culture, our educational system. And uh, we need to get folks off of screens. Um, I'm sure you guys are exposed to that uh, that line of thinking, any, uh, any initial thoughts uh, on the straw man uh, argument that I put out there? It, it is a privileged person's option to say those things mm -hmm. because they are probably still using the internet for their own purposes, maybe even their own education, maybe their sink broke and they're going to figure out how to fix it. Mm -hmm. And so then they look up the video of how to fix it and they didn't have to call the plumber. Right. So being able to say no internet is something someone who already has access can say. Right. Makes it, sense. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense as somebody who regularly looks up how to fix things and then calls somebody anyway because I fear <laughs> trying to fix it myself. But um, I think that's amazing and, and an eye-opening, hopefully an eye-opening thing for everybody that we have to get out of our own world, our own biases and see how other people are living. And that's, that is where I want to pivot to, Angela, on the education side of educating people about this. How, how do we take this one up the chain policy-wise to the U.S. government, to state governments? I've seen uh, Seattle, uh, sorry, uh, Washington has a bill that is looking at digital inclusion. There is a digital inclusion bill uh, in the spring for the U.S. Senate. So there are things happening, but I want to take that first, then take individual education. 
how does that happen? How do you take that as a mission and go you know, forward and try to educate Congress people and others to move forward with this sort of bill? Right. So this is something NDIA is doing, um, educating policymakers, educating the general public, educating media as to what is digital inclusion, what is needed to address it. And what we need is funding for digital literacy training uh, is one. And that's where that's being addressed right now is the Digital Equity Act, uh, which came out of Senator Murray, uh, who's um, from, um, she's a senator, and she is, her Digital Equity Act is addressing primarily the digital literacy training piece of it, but also the affordability piece of it. Um, and so there's digitalequityact.org, there's lots of information there. Um, but then the other piece of it is the access to uh, the internet at home. And this is a much, this can't be solved by just, and I say just, but it can't be solved with writing a check, right? Like it, it, it's not just a money issue. It is our structure in the United States is such that broadband access is a commodity. It's not considered a utility. It's not really regulated. I mean, it's regulated in super tiny ways, but not in a way that where, um, for example, cost is the biggest barrier to having internet at home. We have no right, there's no regulations about cost. So providers can charge whatever seems, whatever the market will allow. And because in most places, there are usually um, only two providers. Right. If you're lucky, you might have three. If you're super unlucky, you only have one. If you're super, super, super unlucky, you have zero. So um, they can pretty much charge what they want to charge, which in the average tends to be in the 65 to $75 a month range, uh, which can be totally out of reach for some households. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, so now to the individual and thinking of the people who are either personally biased for one reason or another, or simply living in a bubble that they have not yet burst and they haven't been able to look outside of their own small world. What's the steps there? Is that simply waiting for them to come around or is there, and this is going to maybe sound wrong, but a more forceful way to get this information in front of people who may not otherwise seek it out? So are you referring to people who... Individuals to help the process forward, like people in their homes who are right now on the internet, myself, somebody right. in a, a community that has those three ISPs are, are doing a good job of keeping costs somewhat down. How do we get educated enough to help move this process forward? So there's quite a bit on our website, which is digitalinclusion.org. So we encourage you to go peruse around and see what's there. Uh, NDIA is a nonprofit 501c3 organization. Uh, we have an affiliate structure where it's free to be a member. So we welcome anyone to come in, participate in our community, as Zandi has done. Uh, she is very active on the listserv and participates in, in the conversations, which we love. Um, and so it's, it's, if this is an issue that concerns you, understanding what's been happening in other places, which is what NDIA facilitates so that you can take action locally. Um, in your own school district, in your own community, there are people, I guarantee you, no matter um, what kind of community you live in, if there's anyone living in poverty, you have folks who are living without home internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just um, sort of expanding the, the focus around inclusion, uh, I think is useful too as a learning podcast. So like we've, We've talked in the past about universal design for learning, and we've talked about, um, you know, the types of ac accommodations that are necessary to really enable uh, true equity. Uh, and we've generally thought about that from the perspective of, uh, you know, maybe folks who have access to sort of the fundamental connectivity and other inclusive aspects that you're talking about. 
how do you guys think about that? Like, sorry, I keep saying you guys, and it's 2019. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'll, I'll work on it. But, um, but uh, w- any thoughts, maybe beginning with you, Angela, and then I'd, I'd love to hear, hear your thoughts as well, uh, Zandi, just around uh, the movement towards inclusivity uh, and different ways in which uh, good uh, instructional design, good uh, design of your sort of your materials, uh, thinks about equity and access. Uh, you know, and I imagine there's a big part of digital that's related to that too, where like, you know, whether it's uh, closed captioning or, uh, you know, stuff for the visually impaired. Um, is that something uh, that's directly in line with uh, digital inclusion or is that sort of a, a related co- set of concepts? Yeah, it is directly in line. So NDIA focuses on the um, affordable home broadband access and the, di- the basic digital literacy training because there weren't others doing that. Mm-hmm. But there is a very strong field around accessibility and and that will sh- that teaches us and shows us how to make sure that the materials are inclusive and to make sure that we are getting them to everyone. Uh, NDIA's affiliates are community-based organizations, libraries, housing authorities, local governments, and they do that at the, at the local level. And they do that by making sure that their trainings are in different languages and that they are in accessible places that they are close by where folks already are, so it's not hard to get to those trainings. One of the most brilliant new initiatives is putting digital literacy trainings in laundromats, mm. often run by libraries, mm-hmm. because the population you want to reach is in the laundromat, and they don't mm. have anything else to do, and they gotta keep the kids busy. So <laughs> you can have uh, some, some digital uh, training activities and some fun stuff for the kids all in one place. Got it. Uh, anything to add on that, uh, Sandy? Yeah, I think Angela covered a lot of the the big points. Um, but you know, thinking about designing learning for you know for an online space, but making it accessible. Uh, also, you know, we talked about the homework app and the challenges of not having internet at home. And so, something as simple as making your curriculum uh, downloadable offline, so that I can you know go to the library right after school and download everything that I need to my device, and then be able to access it on my own time and not have to stay at the library and wait for my turn and everything. Uh, that that can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking also just about what, uh, you know, who knows about your services. So I mentioned the, the work that I've been doing with the university and the writing center and the, the writing center um, that I support uh, has, you know, you have to have to make an appointment through their website in order to sign up. Uh, and we realized that there's a whole population of students who don't don't have a computer and don't know that uh, they can get this kind of support. And so we made paper flyers that go in the computer labs, right? Which to Angela's point, that's where the people who we're trying to reach who don't have their own computers, they're writing their essays in the computer labs. And so, you know, letting them know that this resource is out there and how to access it without relying on them to use their Google skills or their other you know, sort of web navigation skills to find us on their own. Yeah, that makes a makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of, uh, you know, when you go through uh, the persona exercises when you're designing for uh, potential users, uh, a persona that frequently may not be included is uh, someone who's in a laundromat or someone who is, uh, you know, has limited access in a public library. Um, so that's, uh, that's actually a good note. I think also a lot of our listeners, I, I think, are more on the learning designer side of the equation. And um, you know, honestly, that was eye-opening uh, for me to think of that uh, as well. Uh, related note, I think, is um, 
the mindset problem that I think exists out there too. We talked about this when we covered digital readiness uh, a couple years ago, is that um, there's really a wealth of uh, educational resources that are available online, but many people just don't, they don't know how to start. They don't know that they're out there. Uh, maybe they have, you know, access to the internet and they have a mobile phone, but uh, when, they, when they are online, they're not really thinking about education as something that uh, can be delivered online. Mm-hmm. How do you guys, uh, sorry, how do you, uh, maybe beginning with you, Zandi, and then following up with, uh, with Angela, like someone uh, who's thinking about digital inclusion, how would you, uh, how, how do, do folks in the field address some of those problems? So libraries are doing a lot of that work, uh, and there's a there's actually a, a model that I really love that's um, peer-to-peer university, which partners with libraries and other community organizations to facilitate online uh, or the use of online resources like Coursera and edX and and other MOOCs and online training, um, but to provide a a face-to-face community that's going through those courses together and um, that can provide some additional support around the technology side Mm -hmm. uh, and also just help people know that those tools are out there. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one of the big ways I think, um, you know, that still of course requires people to go to their library and have an interest in pursuing that and find out that that's available. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so that doesn't, that doesn't solve the root of the problem, but it's one of the solutions that we're seeing. And uh, Angela, anything uh, to add on that? Yeah, one of the things that we've learned through the NDIA affiliates is that there has to be a level of trust between the whoever's teaching the technology and the person that is being taught because technology is intimidating and there's lots of scary information out there about privacy and information being stolen and your financial life, you know, going up in smoke because mm-hmm. of someone, you know, stealing all of your information. So the trust factor is huge uh, and so as the trust is established and then that allows the instructor to then lead that person through even more and more skill sets of what they can do online. Mm -hmm. Um, Digital literacy is not the kind of thing we're ever done learning. Mm -hmm. Digital skills just keep coming and coming and coming because we keep looking for them and we keep figuring it out. And so an important part of this, and it's very similar to issues being discussed in the, the broader education field is just critical thinking. Mm-hmm. So do you feel confident that you can figure it out? You don't really know what it is, but can you figure it out? Right, right. And, um, you know, as someone who's uh, pretty passionate about podcasting uh, as a, a format, um, are you exploring different formats and the adoption of them? So like, you know, you mentioned how technology is, is moving forward and changing. Um, for me, like I've, I've sort of, really had a sort of awakening around the power of audio and the accessibility, even, you know, if you have a, a overdrive and Libby, you can get access to uh, audio books through libraries. Uh, also as the husband of uh, someone who with a library science background, I, I have to give a nod to our, li- our library librarians are kind of, they're among the, the, the heroes of this narrative too. But, uh, but how do we think about um, providing the right tools to, those uh, those gatekeepers, so that as these new formats emerge, they can help educate the people who they get uh, direct contact with. Because frequently, that the first form of interaction is going to be face to face, likely uh, to kind of get the readiness. And that's 
you know, even are there tactics that, that work effectively there? I'd love to hear maybe from you uh, first on that, uh, Angela. I think the tactic is just finding something that people care about, mm -hmm. right? So we'll hear really great stories from the field of um, particularly senior citizens who were hesitant, but they know they have to do it because if they want to see their social security benefits, if they want to see their pictures of their grandkids, if they want to do all the things that they want to do, they have to figure out how to be online. But it's figuring out how to help them do that with that first step. So what is that first step? Maybe it's jazz music. Maybe it's recipes. Maybe it is those pictures of grandkids. But mm -hmm. it's that first thing. And then the other things like online banking, which seems so scary, but are less scary when you have somebody leading you through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking also about like, um, you know, the healthcare exchanges, like a lot of the, right. the services that people most in need really need to find are only accessible, primarily accessible through, uh, through digital. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Zandi, anything, uh, anything to add on this? Yeah, I'll add. So you asked about getting the right tools to those folks who are working on the front lines, the librarians and the you know the library staff uh, and other you know folks in community organizations. Um, and it's interesting that there's even still to some extent there is sort of a lingering divide or a, or a spectrum of resources and and resource resource wealth. I guess I would say um, mm. for for example big urban library systems that have you know, a big budget and a team of folks who specialize in technology training and teaching uh, versus smaller library systems or uh, libraries where the person who is you know, operating the, the um, circulation desk is also the person who will have to step out from the desk to go and try to help you with your social security benefits and then step back in to help people check out books, right? Um, and so depending on the size of the organization and the size of the library, they're um, you know, you're more likely to be reliant on volunteers or on you know, just how much time can I spare from my other required tasks in order to step out and try to help somebody with this. Um, so there's, you know, there's not a great solution to that yet, unfortunately, other than you know, maybe more funding and more training uh, for especially the libraries that are and the community organizations that don't yet have all of that in place. Yeah, and just one quick follow-up, and I think Dan will, will kind of help bring us home, but um, the related uh, thought is, like, do you have recommendations to folks who want to help solve this problem? Like, is it, like, what's, what's the best thing for someone who feels like this sounds like something I could uh, be activated against? Um, is it as simple as volunteering your time? Uh, obviously, NDIA has the uh, a, a wealth of information that folks could could explore, but uh, maybe starting with you, Zandi, and maybe finishing with uh, with Angela. Um, any recommendations to our listeners, or even if you want our listeners to activate other folks, um, you know, people who want to address this problem. Um, what are some ideas uh, as far as how they might do that? So, I mean, the, the short and easy answer is uh, find out if your local library needs volunteers to help with uh, technology training, because they probably do. Uh, a lot of them do. And that's a, an easy place to get started. Uh, there are lots of other community organizations that are doing this kind of work, too, um, including organizations that serve populations experiencing homelessness, uh, schools. I mean, lots, lots and lots of different ways to get plugged in, but the libraries often are sort of the, the front lines of this particular challenge. And if they don't need that volunteer support, they will know who else does in the community. 
Yeah, and I, I love the reference to seniors too, because I think that's a really interesting population uh, to think about. Um, but uh, Angela, any, uh, any additional thoughts? On the NDIA website, which is digitalinclusion.org, there's a map of our affiliates. So you can see if there, we don't know everyone who's doing this work because it has been so local organically grown, but we do know a lot of the folks. So you can see if there are, there are lots of libraries doing it, but then are there other entities, those maybe who are serving seniors, who are serving immigrants, who are um, maybe through park and rec departments sometimes, um, that you can find them and see if they are accepting volunteers to help them. Mm-hmm. And then another, a- another quick easy one, um, not necessarily easy, but one that you could try to go at is through your own school district. So what, asking questions. So does our technology plan in this district address the fact that some of our kids don't have access at home? Mm-hmm. So, and then what are we doing about that? How are we addressing the fact that those kids don't have access at home? Because there are some school districts that are being really proactive and they are figuring out how to get those kids access. Right. And it, it probably is one of those things where, you know, the, the majority of parents who are active in their local school probably already have access. So like they need to, you know, it's almost like paying it forward in terms of your thinking, like, you know, opening up your awareness that there are people who maybe have less access than you and being willing to uh, sort of represent for them because they may not actually be in the room. Yes. They need your voice. Mm-hmm. I think I found my next volunteer gig uh, in my uh, daughter's schools, but uh, we'll see how that turns out. I, I wanted to ask a, a forward-looking question. Mike often asks uh, around uh, skating where the puck is going rather than where it is. Uh, for you, Zandi, what trends are you watching, whether in this inclusion space or lo- larger uh, in education that you think could influence the work that you're doing uh, at present? That's a great question. Um, so I'm, for me personally, uh, I'm always interested in, in uh, education that empowers people to learn from their peers and to, to not see a sort of an authority figure or a teacher as the sole source of information. Um, and I think that uh, the internet, of course, has, has enabled a lot of that in ways that, that we really have never had before, um, or you know, not significantly. Uh, so I'd be interested to see where, how that might help us to make some strides on digital inclusion and digital uh, equity efforts, um, and maybe getting, uh, particularly in some of these the communities where we have a, a you know a higher density of folks who are not connected, um, getting uh, more of a peer to peer or an allyship network rather than a sort of top down. We have the internet, and so you should too. Um, approach, right? That I think there's a potential for better buy-in and better um, uh, sort of camaraderie there. And Angela, how about yourself? Uh, what trends are you watching? What do you think it could be included in the work you're doing, and maybe even outside of it? So there's an increasing understanding that everybody does need to have access to the internet, and everyone does need digital skills. That's not how it used to be. So that's definitely trending in a very positive place where I don't have to argue with folks anymore about why this is important. Instead, we're talking about strategies. So we're, that's positive. We're not quite at those, all those solutions yet, but we are on that trajectory where I think it is trending towards figuring it out in a real kind of way. And it's going to be big kind of real. Like we can't, we can't keep patchworking it as we have been doing. So I got to, you guys have been amazing. Thank you so much. You people have been amazing. Thank you so much for the time. Um, But I did have a a couple that that came to mind just as you you were talking. Um, 
one is that the the internet is also a scary place for a lot of people uh and there's uh there's uh fake news out there uh reliable sources are hard to find so frequently you know you give someone access to the internet um that can go in a lot of dangerous directions so how do we make sure that uh, digital education is a is a safe place uh, for people to learn, and maybe uh, Angela, if you could go first. So it's the digital literacy, mm-hmm. right? So none of us are one hundred percent safe, of course, uh, but those of us who do have digital skills feel more confident in looking up information, feeling mostly secure that what we're looking at is legit. Um, there's always that, you know, you're not, nobody's one hundred percent. But if we can get more folks to have those digital literacy skills so that they can figure it out themselves, it, it really goes to that broader education issue, right? Mm-hmm. Can you figure something out? That's education. And, and just to follow up real quick, like, are there ways, do you, are there ways to teach digital literacy or is it more of, uh, so there are, uh, I'm seeing from nonverbals uh, that there are. So uh, what are some of the ways, and maybe begin with you, Zandi, uh, any, any ways in which you, digital literacy can be taught? Uh, yes. I mean, this is, this is largely what I do these days. Um, and so uh, part of that is finding out what, what's motivating people to uh, try to tackle this issue. Um, I think Angela spoke to this of finding something that they care about uh, and then saying, great, here's how we can can help you achieve not just that goal, but then other goals that that might open up for you. Um, it's also encouraging people to play and uh, doing so in a space that's safe where they feel like they can't, uh, they're not going to break something or, you know, fall through a hole in the internet or something, you know, that, that the way that uh, children learn how to use an iPad, for instance, is by touching things and banging on it. And they're not afraid that they're going to break something. Uh, and when you're teaching adults how to use a usually an expensive piece of equipment uh, that they probably don't own, or if they do own it, it's because they spent a lot of money to get it. Uh, there's a lot of fear around, I'm going to do something wrong and I'm going to break it and I'm going to, or someone's going to, going to hack my email. Uh, And so trying to provide opportunities for people to explore and click on things and see what happens uh, and develop that sense of uh, problem solving and digital problem solving uh, without the fear. But then also, yes, definitely um, installing safeguards around like, how do I know if what I'm clicking on is legitimate? Mm-hmm. If I had to uh, tell my two-year-old she wasn't allowed to open my phone and find the app she had, I need to put the safeguards on for myself because of what she may be clicking on, but more <laughs> less so what she's doing on there. But this is all amazing information. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you both. And I think uh, hopefully our listeners got a lot out of this. And also moving forward, folks who visit your website and, and get into exactly what you're trying to do. Uh, this seems like a topic that's only going to become bigger and bigger as time goes on. As Angela said, the technology just keeps growing and growing. Uh, so it will be one we'll track here. Uh, Angela Siever, Executive Director at NDIA. Zandy Wright, friend of the podcast, colleague. Thanks so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. As always, you can find us over on Twitter at Trending and Ed, trendingandeducation.com, Trending and Ed as well on Facebook. We want to hear what you thought about this episode and so much more. Find us on any one of those. Be happy to hear from you. Until next time, you've been listening to Trending in Education.